But today we get to continue in the Psalms of Ascent. We're going to try to get through three today, Psalm 126, 127, and 128. Psalm 126 begins with the scene of great joy for the nation. Now we don't know why or what specific event that triggered this. It could be referring to the release of the Babylonian captivity of 70 years. Some commentators think it's the case, others don't. And it really doesn't matter, but we can picture that to get an idea of how um, the people were thinking. The scene does fit a return from the Babylonian captivity. It seems to fit what they're saying. But the description is fairly general in nature, so we can't be sure. God restored the fortunes of Zion several times in their history when it was under pressure from foreign powers. There were uh, possibly even two different restorations referred to in the first few verses that took place in the past. In verses 1 to 3, and then maybe a prayer for a current restoration in verse 4 with a confidence that it would take place in verses 5 and 6. Now, if it refers to the Babylonian captivity, there were three separate returns from the Babylonian captivity. There was one under Zerubbabel that we read about in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. And that took place about 538 B.C. There was one under Ezra that we read about in Ezra chapters 7 to 10, which was 458 B.C., And then there was one a few years later under Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 in 445 B.C. So even if you say it's returned from the Babylonian captivity, we don't know which one. But again, it really doesn't matter. It starts out in verses 1 through 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now the scene in verses 1 to 3 is joyous because of what the Lord has done. Now, I don't think we can sit here and fully appreciate what this must have been like for those in Israel. You know, we can't relate to that in our lives. Because our country has not to date been overrun by a foreign power. Uh, We haven't been taken captive and sent somewhere. Um, Possibly you could, maybe there's a comparison to some of the, the, the Native American tribes. I don't, you know, But it's hard. It's hard for us to just relate to this. But picture this as being a return from the Babylonian captivity. And then read verses 2 and 3. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So this is such an event that the nations that witnessed it were amazed at what the Lord had done. It was dreamlike. It was surreal. Did this just happen? Is Israel going back to Jerusalem? Yes, it did. And the only one to praise was the Lord because he had done great things, which is what we see in verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes to Zion, he had done great things. Now picture the time, if you can, that you came to saving faith in the Lord. Again, the only one to praise is the Lord. For he has done great things things. 
Romans 6, 5 to 11, gives us the reason to rejoice. Gives you, gives me the reason to rejoice. It says this in Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been fully justified, we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's a powerful passage. That's a powerful passage. And we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Similarly, the people of Israel rejoiced when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. So this, we can use this. We can rejoice because what God has done. Now, it was hard for Israel to maintain that same degree of laughter and of joy as time went on. Just like it's hard for us to maintain our rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as it's stated in verse 11 of Romans 5. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So how do we keep this from getting stale or old hat? Because that's just how we are. I mean, what Fred said was very, you know, I mean, we all deal with that. Boy, you remember that time. That was a great Christmas time when you remembered that. But how do we we maintain that? Well, one way we do is kind of what you said. You remember. We remember. And we have a few passages that deal with that. Ephesians 2.12 says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember. Remember. Psalm 77, 11 to 14 says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. Who is like, who, 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 what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. We need to remember. It's always good to go back to remember. And that's what uh, you know, the children of Israel were told, were told many times to remember, to remember, to remember. We have the same issue that they did. We need to remember. And as we remember, then we can honor God and maintain that joy. Keep that joy. Now, starting in verse 4, there is a, there is a looking forward to the future to the restoration that God will yet do. He asks for shouts of joy to come again. And all of this joy is only possible because of what the Lord can and will do. Verse 4 through 6 reads this. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. 
the thinking of commentators, as we said a little earlier, is that after verse 3, there is a, a second prayer for a current restoration. Where verses 1 to 3 were a prior restoration. This is a current restoration with, with a confidence that it will take place in verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Why a second restoration? Well, because the memory of the past had become a memory. James Boyce wrote this. The writer is asking God for the good times again. He is asking for what is good, desirable, and glorifying to God. He is asking in verse 4 for the streams to flow in the Negev. The streams there fill up quickly when there is rain, and therefore the request is for a quick restoration from God. Bring the rain. And it's not the physical rain, but so they can be restored. Spurgeon wrote this, Remembering the former joy of a past rescue, they, try, they cry to Jehovah for a repetition of it. When we pray for the turning of our captivity, it is wise to recall former instances thereof. Nothing strengthens faith more effectually than the memory of a previous experience. He goes on, Spurgeon goes on and says, The text shows us how wise it is to resort anew to the Lord, who in former times has been so good to us. Where else should we go but to him who has done such great things for us? Do not let us forget the past, but in the presence of our present difficulty, let us resort unto the Lord and beseech him to do that for us which we cannot possibly do for ourselves, that which no other power can perform on our behalf. So Spurgeon saying, beseech the Lord, which is what they're doing here. And after the pictures of the flowing streams in verse 4, there is the picture of an abundant harvest in verse 5 and 6. Now, these are not pictures of personal wealth and happiness as is promised by the TV evangelists and all these countless books that say, oh yeah. And sadly, that's gobbled up by millions around the globe. By millions around the globe. And it's, it's not just in the U.S., it's everywhere. First. Yes. You ask uh, how we remember this stuff. And for me, and this is just for me because I'm so stubborn and not always focused the way I should be, I don't come to the Lord and read His Word and just open it up and then just read it. I go to the Lord first and I talk to Him and I ask Him to help me to remember things. So it's not a routine. And then when I'm done reading the Word, I do the same thing. Lord, what it was I supposed to get out of this? And for me, that keeps it from being just a routine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we all need something, so it's just not routine. And I don't know if I'm probably the only one in the world. I can be reading along and really getting into something. And then I realize in the last three paragraphs, I've been thinking about, the snow falling and what I need to do. I'm reading the words, but nothing's connecting. You're human. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a little, I don't know if it's ADD or DDD or stupid or what it is, but I mean, focus, you know, it's focus on what we're doing. Thanks for sharing that. But the, the, the pictures that we get from the TV evangelists and the books talking about my personal wealth 
That's all about glorifying me. When we read here and when we remember, it's so God would be glorified. So God would be glorified. Remember what it says in verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. God got the glory. Israel didn't get the glory. Look what Israel did. No, look what God did for Israel. So God is, God's glory is the purpose. So the surrounding non-believing people will see the work of God. Matthew Henry wrote on the last verses, and I put these in this in your notes of Psalm 126. He wrote, and he wrote this, you know, more than a couple years ago, because he lived a long time ago. The trouble of the troubles of the saints will not last always, but when they have done their work, shall have a happy period. Those who sow in tears of godly sorrow will reap in the joy of a sealed pardon and a settled peace. Those that sow to the Spirit in this veil of tears shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And that will be a joyful harvest indeed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be forever comforted. Now, if you grew up in a church setting, you might have recognized verse 5 and 6 from a hymn. Did anybody recognize the hymn there? It's called Bringing in the Sheaves. Okay, it was written in 1874 by a person named Noel's Shaw. It's not sung too much anymore. We can uh, we have it in a couple of the old hymn books we have at home, but we got the bazillion hymn books. And it says this, sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve. Waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we will come rejoicing bringing in the sheaves. In the last verse says, Going forth with weeping, sowing for the master, though the loss sustained our spirit often grieves, when our weeping's over, he will bid us welcome, we will come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. You go look up that song sometime if you don't know it. I could sing it, I know the melody, but I won't bore you with it. Okay? That, real quickly, is Psalm 126. And I didn't go off on a rabbit trail too badly there. That might change. Psalm 127, another of the Psalms of Ascents. And Psalm 127 begins with a passage that is familiar to many, even though the reference may not be familiar. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, Psalm 127 is one of two psalms that's attributed to Solomon. The other one is Psalm 72. And Solomon was in a credible position to understand what value, what had value and what did not. The entire book of Ecclesiastes speaks to this subject. What has value and what does not. The whole book. And Solomon concludes the book by saying, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Before that, he spoke of all that he had done. Because it was what he had gone after. And not anything that God had done it was vanity all that he searched after whether it was wealth or pleasure or building or power or prominence he said it was vanity or just a breath nothing of value so it starts out unless the Lord builds his house those who build it labor in vain 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now for us today, one of the applications here is to his church. The Lord builds the church. Spurgeon wrote this. The psalmist does not bid the builder cease from laboring or suggest that the watchmen should neglect their duty, nor that men should show their trust in God by doing nothing. Nay, he supposes that they will do all they can do, and then he forbids their fixing their trust in what they have done and assures them that all creature effort will be in vain unless the Creator puts forth His power. We don't sit back here and go, okay, God, do it. I'm just going to do nothing. God builds it. He, we work. We do our things. We do what we should do. But it's God who makes it effective. Now, in the last few decades, probably, probably starting in earnest about six decades ago, the early 60s, the application of the meaning of this verse has been severely tested in the church. In the later 20th century, that what, which is called the church growth movement, and it's kind of morphed into the seeker-sensitive movement, they're kind of cousins or brothers, began in earnest. The church growth movement emphasized a lot of things. A guy named Donald McGavran is considered the founder of the modern church growth movement. Early leaders of the church growth movement were C. Peter Wagner, who was a professor at Fuller Seminary, which is where Jim Harris got his master's from. Uh, he, he died in 2016 or 17, I think. This is part of the notes I lost. Um, another leader of the church growth movement was a person you've probably all heard of, and that's Robert Schuller, who had the Crystal Cathedral. By the way, the Crystal Cathedral is now a Catholic church. If you didn't know that, it kind of went bankrupt. And another guy that you probably heard of named Bill Hybels, who started Willow Creek Church. Other strong adherents to that today, a very strong adherent would be the Saddleback Church with Rick Warren. Um, all the, the NAR churches, the, the Hillsong churches, and all those are are big into this church growth movement. There are a lot of things that are used in the formulas of those pursuing church growth. These can include entertaining music in the worship services. Now, that doesn't mean music has to be bad, but music becomes dominant. Worship bands cease to exist, others in praising God, but become more concert-focused where the congregation in the audience uh, just sits. You have light and fog machines, various stage effects, similar to a secular concert. Um, one guy who has gotten out of it, someone asked him, he says, oh yeah, I did that. Now he's, he's not a proponent of this at all anymore, and he, he actually preached a sermon while he was being dangled from a trapeze, you know, hanging over the... You know, these types of things. The song style parallels secular venues. And that's one reason we have the what many people call the 7-Eleven songs today. There's seven words you sing 11 times. Um, part of that is because it, it creates this trance-like effect to the audience. There's nothing wrong with that if it's done right. But a lot of it, it's for, it's for manipulation. There's drama. Oh, man, some of these places have drama like you've never seen. Uh, I know a person who told me about the church that he chose. He said, well, they have a great drama department. Okay. 
There's messages that are written to encourage, to make those listening feel good about themselves. There's slick marketing campaigns to attract. And if you want to know kind of what that looks like, go out to any church today in Boise. You can go anywhere you want and look at their website and just see what they use to try to attract people in. You know, they ask, you know, you're welcome here. You're loved here. We do this. We do that. We do that. It's marketing. It's merchandising. They have nice buildings with incredible interior designs and nice, and there's nothing wrong with all that, but this is what they use to try to attract people. It's an attraction mode. Three things that drive the culture of the church growth movement are, one, it's a very pragmatic approach. Do what brings people in, what works. Pastors become more like CEOs rather than shepherd the flock of God. We'll talk about that a little more. And you have to become socially relevant. Speak to societal issues in a day of, of, of the day in a manner that doesn't criticize. They do this. This may include inclusive statements. They're all over the place when you look at them. About the environment. There's one church why we talked about it the last week or the week before who you know talked about their green footprint to help bring people in. <clears throat> they affirm and welcome LGBTQ in, quote, all aspects of church life. I saw a site that actually said that. But the things that are not considered are Teach the scripture and let the spirit of God convict. And call out activities that are stated in scripture as sin. Because that's not going to help this church growth. There's a book I read. And I remembered it as I was typing these notes up. Called No Place for Truth. And underneath that it says, Whatever happened to evangelical theology by a guy named David Wells. And he wrote this in 1993. He wrote in this book, says, I look at the way the pastorate has become professionalized, how the central function of the pastor has changed from that of truth broker to manager of the small enterprises we call churches. To the extent that this tendency has taken root, I have concluded that it is producing a new generation of pastoral disablers. And we now have less biblical fidelity, less interest in truth, less seriousness, less depth, and less capacity to speak the word of God to our own generation in a way that offers an alternative to what it already thinks. He was right on. He said, less capacity to speak the word of God to our own generation in a way that offers an alternative to what it already thinks. Because these churches, a part of this church growth movement, the seeker sensitive, will just affirm everything you want it to be. He goes on. The older orthodoxy was driven by a passion for truth, and that's why it could express, himself, express itself only in theological terms. The newer evangelicalism is not driven by the same passion for truth, and that is why it is often empty of theological interest. Because they just, it's just that way. And he hit it right on the head in 1993. Wells also went on to write this, and I thought this was very interesting. A culture from whom God is no longer present believes everything. And I would add, and I think I have this on our, our uh, notes here, and I would add, that when you believe in everything, you believe in nothing. 
Then Wells states, when we believe in nothing, we open the doors to believe anything. And that's what we have today. You can believe anything. I'm a man. No, I'm a woman. What are you? Well, I haven't figured that out yet. This is what we are seeing in society today. A man can think of himself as a woman and a woman as a man. And those who claim that that's an absurdity, I watched an interview on this by somebody who was trained to be a medical doctor. They call us hateful and call us the moral police. And they're not? It's interesting. She was calling him the moral police because he said that was wrong. But that made her the moral police by calling him the moral police. She didn't see it that way. All this stuff is happening within what is called the church. What's happened? People are trying to build their church with their ideas, with their goals, and their work. And what's it say here in Psalm 127, 1 and 2? Those who build it labor in vain, and the watchman stays awake in vain. See, I brought this back around to Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the church, they're laboring in vain. The church is the Lord's work. It's not our work. Colossians 3.23 says this, makes it very clear. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's our mission. That's our goal. Let the Lord build the church. That means we do work. But we are serving the Lord. Then, starting in verse 3, some people might think there's an abrupt change of subject. Here we have a statement of one of the blessings from God. And that is through the gift of children. It says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You know, perhaps there's not this big of a change in the subject matter as we might think when we first open that up. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. To those reading this psalm, their house was not a different component of life. James Boyce says, For an ancient Jewish person, the well-being of his family was never far removed from every other concern or endeavor. The Jew would ask, Why is the house being built if it is not for the family? And why are the watchmen protecting the city if not for the families that live in it? Pretty nice ringtone. So it's all tied in. There's a few things to observe in verses 3 to 5. The family is a heritage from the Lord. Do we think of it that way? If God builds the family, it's not in vain. In the marriage debate that's flying around the day, we are absolutely correct in saying that a marriage is between a man and a woman. This was and is God's design. And Congress can pass any law it wants They're wrong. Another point that comes from this passage is that children are a reward. They are a gift from God. And they belong in the family unit that God designed. A family unit is a blessing. 
and the parents together within the city are blessed because of them. Verse 5 shows that children will not shame their parents. Boyce makes out uh, this point. He says, the point of Psalm 127, children are a blessing from God and they along with their parents are among the vital foundation blocks of a healthy, thriving society. Okay, well that got me going on a little rabbit trail again. Of course, we are seeing a breakdown in our society of the family. And you can just go out and Google it and secular people will say the same thing. It's caused by a lot of things. Divorce being the greatest threat, but not the only one. From Pew Research in December 2015, children under 18 years of age, 46% live with two parents in their first marriage. That means 54% don't. More than half. 15% of the children live with two parents in a remarriage. Now, this was in 2015. In 2015, 46% lived with two parents in their first marriage. In 1960, it was 73%. From 73 to 46 15% of children live with two parents in a remarriage. That's up slightly from 1960. It was 14% in 1960. 7% live with cohabitating parents. In 1960, it was 0%. 26% over a quarter live with a single parent. It was 9% in 1960. 5% live with no parents. It was 4% in 1960. What will it look like in another 20 years? I could not find, and I tried to find, a percent of kids living with LGBTQ parents. I couldn't find a percent. Estimates are there are as many 10 million kids there. I think that's high because there's only 74 million kids under 18 in the United States. So that would be one out of seven. I don't think it's that high. But it's, it's coming. You think that's going to tear down the family more? As the society rejects God's word, it is rejecting God's family design. And that is not just a man and a woman, but his children as well. God's family design is not, oh yeah, man marries a woman, yeah. But the children are part of that family design. And so there are grave consequences for children as well. And as the family is torn apart, the fabric of society follows suit. Back to the message of Psalm 127. It is vain to build if the Lord doesn't build it. And if the Lord is not building the family, it's true of the church. If the Lord doesn't build the church, it's, gonna, it's in vain. And we're seeing the teardown of the church today. And of the family... We're seeing the teardown of the family. And what, are, what, what makes up cities? Families. And so we are seeing this whole teardown of society because the Lord is not building it. And all the labor that we put into it is in vain if the Lord doesn't build it. Think back to when this psalm would have been spoken. Remember... It's one of the Psalms of Ascent. It would have been spoken as the people were traveling to Jerusalem for the feasts. It was to remind them to rely on the Lord. He was the builder. 
And they were to work in such a way not to build it in a way that was against the design of God. We must do the same in the church, in our marriages, in our families. We have to do the same thing. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Sorry, it's kind of a kind of a downer message, but it's truth. We need to know that. Now, real quickly, we have time for Psalm 128. This is a little more upbeat. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus, behold, thus the man shall be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Everyone here and everyone basically everywhere would want the life that's mentioned in Psalm 128. There's not one thing that you go through, would you like this, this, this? And they go, yeah, sign me up. Sign me up. I want to eat the, the fruit of the labor of my hands. I want to be blessed. I want a, a wife that will be like a fruitful vine within your house. I want children that will be like olive shoots. I want to be blessed. I want to see the prosperity of Jerusalem. I want to see my children's children all the days of my life. Yeah, we all want that. To be blessed. To have a wife or husband that is like a fruitful vine. To have successful children. What's described here is something all of us would sign up for. But what's the key? The key's in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Matthew Henry began his comment of this psalm by saying, Here it is again and again laid down in an, as an undoubted truth that those who are truly holy, are truly happy. Spurgeon added, The fear of the Lord is the cornerstone of all blessedness. The fear of the Lord is the cornerstone of all blessedness. We must reverence the ever-blessed God before we can be blessed ourselves, he said. Some think that life, that this life is an evil, an affliction, a thing upon which rests a curse, but it is not so. The God-fearing man has a present blessing resting upon him. Derek Kidner wrote, Quiet blessings of an ordered life are traced from the center outwards of this psalm from the godly man. And James Boyce said, Because God is generous and great, his blessings are generous and great as well. The fear of the Lord is a phrase we hear a lot. I looked, it's found in the Bible over a hundred times. What does it mean? The fear of the Lord. From this psalm, it brings blessings from God. If it brings blessings from God, we should probably get an idea of what the fear of the Lord is. I looked it up and I got this one definition and I thought it was pretty good. And we can dig into it a little bit. It says, For the believer, the fear of God is reverence of God. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 is a good description. Where it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We could study that for a couple hours. That'd be fun, but we don't have time. 
This reverence and awe is exactly what the fear of God means for Christians. This is the motivating factor for us to surrender to the creator of the universe. Psalm uh, Proverbs 1.7 declares, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The website went on and said, Until we understand who God is and develop a reverential fear of Him, we cannot have true wisdom. True wisdom comes only from understanding who God is and that He is holy, just, and righteous. Fearing God means having such a reverence for Him that it has a great impact on the way we live our lives. Having such a reverence for Him, it has a great impact on the way we live our lives. The fear of God is respecting Him, obeying Him, submitting to His discipline, and worshiping Him in awe. Boyce wrote, God must be taken seriously. He must not be trifled with. The one we earnestly desire to please and honor as our goal. That's what it means to fear God. But this is the definition when you look at how many people professing Christians treat God, it makes you want to puke. Me anyway, and probably you too. For the Christian, there is the blurring of lines between the sacred and the secular. Everything we do is to be related directly or indirectly in walking in his ways in the fear and reverence of the Lord, as it says in verse 1. Backing up a bit, the prosperity gospel movement treats God more like a cosmic genie. And I've actually had heard someone say that. They think of the Holy Spirit as a genie from Aladdin. makes you just want to take your shoe and throw it through the TV. But then I'd have to buy a new TV. They also, the prosperity gospel also says that faith is a self-generated force. That with prayer you can cause God to grant you prosperity or health or you choose it. According to Joel Osteen, it's even a spot at the mall. He actually said that. For many Christians, God or Jesus is a cuss word. It's used in multiple ways. An adverb, an adjective, a noun, a pronoun, you name it. Throw it in there. OMG. If you use that acronym, quit using it. It's used everywhere, it seems like. The respect for God, the worshiping God, the honoring God is far away from the heart of so many, even those who call themselves Christians. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Church after church, person after person, talk about the love of God. Everyone likes to hear that. I can stand up here, we can talk about the love of God, and people go, it's cool and walk away and it is cool here's some quotes from pastors or authors that you may have even read but you can see the balance is off one is God loves you just the way you are but he refuses to leave you that way oh is that true same guy said God loves you if God had a refrigerator your photo would be on it. If he has a wallet, your picture would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Face it, friend, he's crazy about you. And I'll have to admit, I had a couple of this guy's books in my bookshelf. They're not there anymore. There's another one. And this guy... Um, isn't all bad but he's got this it's all skewed up God loves you as though you are the only person in the world and he loves everyone the same way he loves you 
Well, that's real easy to hear, isn't it? And here, this is from a rank heretic here. God loves you unconditionally. Then this next one is, <laughs> it hurts to even say this. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. What? But people like that. You know, yes, God is love. And we could spend time looking into biblical teachings on the love of God. But where's the focus on all of those quotes? And we could get thousands and thousands more. And we could get lots of books. The focus is on man. That man is to be respected. And man is to be admired. Many have turned what should be the worship of God and the fear of God as we see in Psalm 128.1, into a worship of man. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Not, blessed are you because God loves you as though you're the only person in the world. Psalm 127 showed us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In Psalm 128, we as individuals need to fear the Lord and walk in His ways. God gives us the tools, the strength, but we are to fear and obey God. And as we do that, verses 2 to 6 come into focus. The results of fearing the Lord. Your labor will be prosperous. You will have a husband or a wife like a fruitful vine. You will have successful children. You will, have prosper, you will see prosperity the days of your life. You will see to know your grandchildren. No, that's not for every specific person. But you get the idea. You're blessed by God because you fear God. Now, they're generalizations. But the point of living a life and fearing the Lord will have beneficial results. Now the motivation for fearing the Lord should be because he has instructed us to do so. It's the right thing to do, not so we get something out of it. It's because it's the right thing. Now I have in your notes a quote from John Wesley where he says, and it will be well with you in verse 2. It says, O trust in the Lord for happiness as well as for help. All the springs of happiness are in him. Trust in him who gives us all things richly to enjoy, who of his own rich and free mercy holds them out to us as in his own hand, that receiving them as his gifts, as his pledges of his love, we may enjoy all we possess. It is his love that gives us relish to all we taste, puts life and sweetness into all, while every creature leads us up to the Creator, all earth is a scale to heaven. He transfuses the joy that are at his own right hand into all that he bestows on his thankful children, who, having fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, enjoy him in all and above all. And he wrote that in the 1700s. I'm out of time. First time I've gone over in a long time. A lot of stuff there. A lot of good stuff. Let's pray.